Good morning again. So, uh, when two weeks ago, uh, Larry McCauley was here, and he uh, and he got up here to preach, and he said good morning, and I bet half of you responded good morning, and I thought, I don't think anybody's ever responded to me. <laughs> I get up here every week and say good morning again, and nope, nobody says a word. Thank you. I was a little jealous. All right. Our sermon text for this morning is Acts chapter 10. Uh, Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 10. And uh, I haven't said this in a while, but let me say, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles on the table in the back. You should feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, you should feel free not only to grab one of those, but keep it. Uh, Write your name in it, take it home, and then bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Acts chapter 10, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that you speak to us. By it, and we thank you that you have not left us on our own to understand it, but you have given us your Holy Spirit who illumines our hearts and minds, who opens us up not only to understand what your word says, uh, but to receive it and believe it and to be transformed by it. And so we, we pray, Father, that right now you would pour out your Spirit on each of us, that I would speak what is right and true and good, and that we would hear your word, your gospel, your grace, and that we would. Receive it, believe it, and be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, 
the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days.
Well, it is hard to talk about inclusivity in our culture. It's hard precisely because our culture emphasizes it so much. We live in a culture that is all about welcome and embrace and inclusion, uh, which is good, but there's no nuance. Anything less than total inclusion is, is a mortal sin. Really, that's the only mortal sin. And we can understand that, I think, right? Uh, I mean, who wants to be left out? Who wants to be cast aside? Who wants to be excluded? Think of a time when you were excluded, when you were left out, when you were rejected uh, by the crowd. You probably felt unloved or unwanted or ashamed, maybe even upset, maybe frustrated, maybe angry, maybe bitter. Maybe you're bitter still. As a generality, right, exclusion is, is a negative thing in our minds. The gospel is ultimately about God's embrace of his enemy. There's a, a universal offer of the gospel that embraces all. And at the same time, there are aspects of the gospel that are exclusive, but in the end, Jesus says uh, there's a wide road that leads to destruction, and many are on it. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So there is this inclusive, welcoming the stranger, welcoming the enemy aspect of God's embrace of us in the gospel. And there is this exclusive, narrow road, Jesus is the only way aspect of God's embrace of us in the gospel. Right? There's, there's nuance. Uh, so this week we're going to talk about God's embrace a little bit. We're going to talk about the, the inclusivity of God's embrace, the exclusivity of God's embrace, and then we'll just touch on at the end the trajectory of God's embrace. We're going to see all this in, in Acts chapter 10. And so first let me just remind you of the story. I know we, we just heard it, but let me remind you of some of the, the, the main details. We have Cornelius, uh, this devout soldier, a, a Roman soldier, no less, a devout Gentile. He's visited by an angel. Uh, we're told that his piety, he's told that his piety was seen by God and to send for Simon Peter in Joppa. Uh, meanwhile, the next day, Peter's on the roof praying and hungry. Even Peter got distracted by his stomach while praying. Uh, Peter, while hungry on this roof, has this vision of the heavens being opened and a sheep coming down. It's like this great big picnic blanket, right, coming down from the sky. And it's filled with all kinds of animals. Animals that were okay for Jews to eat, clean animals, and animals that were not okay for Jews to eat, unclean animals. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And apparently Peter recognizes this voice because he says, by no means, Lord. Of course, in the book of Acts, uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. Uh, that's what Peter has been proclaiming uh, throughout the book of Acts. Uh, Peter, though, he's a good Jewish boy. He's never eaten anything unclean. And so he says, no. Uh, but the voice says, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times, and Peter doesn't understand what it means. Well, while Peter's trying to figure this out, three men uh, come from Cornelius. And again, the voice says, rise and go down, accompany them, for I have sent them. Peter goes down, hears them out, and invites them in. 
already at this point, it's a pretty uh, uh, a radical story, right? Peter hasn't told us yet, uh, but he must understand the vision in part uh, because he just invited Gentiles into the home to eat with him. The next day, Peter and these uh, three men from Cornelius and some other Christians, some other Christians from, from Joppa, uh, so that there would be witnesses, I think, go to Caesarea. Peter announces what he has learned in verse 28. He says, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Uh, Cornelius then recounts his vision, emphasizing its importance, right? So there's this repetition that kind of emphasizes how momentous of an occasion this is. Uh, Peter then preaches the gospel really the same way he has throughout the book of Acts, hitting on the same key points. The Holy Spirit falls on all who heard the word. Uh, The difference is this time the Holy Spirit falls on Gentiles. They're all baptized then in the name of Jesus. What do we learn from this story? Well, first let's uh, look at the inclusivity of God's embrace. Uh, how, How wide is God's embrace? How wide is his mercy? I realize that's uh, potentially a dangerous question to ask, right? But, it, but it's a necessary one. And it's an old one. Uh, God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth. God chose Israel out of all the nations. Is that partiality? Worse, is that some kind of divine prejudice? Well, the short answer, right, is that uh, God does not show partiality. That's what Peter says in verse 34. But God's election of Abraham and God's election of Israel was actually for the sake of the nations. Right? They were elected to a calling to bring blessing to the nations. That's what Genesis 12 says. God is going to bless the nations through Abraham and through his seed, his children. What we see here in Acts is, is actually Abraham's seed, uh, Jesus, fulfilling that calling, bringing blessing to the nations, beginning with this Roman military officer, Cornelius. But I want us to, to see that by looking at three questions that I think Luke is at least implicitly answering. He's kind of moving us along as we read this story, and he's trying to get us to see these three things. So the first question is, is Cornelius inferior in some way, intrinsically, to, to the pious Jews around him? Uh, or to put it differently, in God's eyes, and of course this was a live question in that day, you have to understand, right? In God's eyes, uh, are, are pious Gentiles inferior to pious Jews? Notice how Cornelius is introduced in verses 1 and 2. Uh, chapter 10, verse 1. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Now, these things that are said about Cornelius are not random, right? On, on the one hand, Cornelius is a centurion, an officer in the Roman army. He's not the kind of man you would expect God to be speaking to. But on the other hand, Cornelius is said to be a devout man. As evidence of his devotion, we're told three things, that he feared God, that he gave alms, and that he prayed continually. 
uh, that the fear of the Lord, uh, you may know in Scripture, is the beginning of wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs, right? The, the fear of the Lord is the essence of Israelite religion. To fear God is not simply an emotional response, uh, nor a general terror of the holy, right? But to fear God is to know Him, to know His glory, to know His, to be aware of His law, and to walk in His ways. Cornelius is a genuine God-fearer. He knows Yahweh. He knows Yahweh's law. And as, as evidence of that, um, Luke lists two other things. He lists his giving alms and his praying continually. Now, you may wonder why those two things, uh, or, or why, why those in particular. But notice, uh, those are the very things that Jesus picks up on in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. Think back, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to explain that in terms of giving to the needy and prayer and fasting. Your righteousness, according to Jesus, is expressed by how you relate to God, prayer, and how you relate to those in need giving alms. So uh, James picks up on this later in the, in the book of James, where he says that true religion is to care for widows and orphans. So, so what is Luke trying to say about Cornelius? He's, he's really just saying he's a godly man. He's not saying he's perfect. He's not saying he's earned God's favor or anything like that. But in as much as a Gentile could, Cornelius was living out Old Testament piety. He feared God. He gave alms. He prayed continually. And the language used here is actually dripping with, believe it or not, temple or sacrificial overtones. Uh, so verse 3, Cornelius' vision is at the ninth hour of the day, one of the times of the daily sacrifices in the temple. This is when Cornelius receives this vision. The angel says, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial, like the ascension offering whose smoke ascends to God as a pleasing aroma. So Cornelius' piety has been pleasing to God. Like the memorial portion of the grain offering placed on the altar, so Cornelius' piety is a, is a token or a sign, a memorial of a whole life devoted to God. So Cornelius is, is being pictured here as a, as a pious man, a righteous man who worshiped God truly, even if not ceremonially. Right? Remember, Cornelius is, a, is not a, uh, he doesn't worship Gentile pagan gods, but he worships the true God, Yahweh, as a Gentile. So we're, we're, pictured, we're, we're getting the picture here of this Gentile who actually worships the true God as much as he is able, according to the Old Testament law. <clears throat> so first, Cornelius' piety as a Gentile worshiper of Yahweh is not inferior right, to, uh, to the piety of the Jews. Um, that this is really a true test of God's partiality in one sense because you're lining up a pious Gentile next to pious Jews, all else being equal, right? Will God accept him, right? Everything else is, is good. He, does the, he lives out the, the Old Testament law. He fears the Lord. Is God going to accept him? If not, we know it's just because God shows partiality, right? He, he prefers Jews and not Gentiles. Question two, is, is anyone or anything categorically unclean, right? Okay, what does that mean? Well, to be unclean uh, was to be unable to enter God's presence. You read through the Old Testament law, 
There were lots of ways you could become unclean. When you were unclean, you couldn't come before God. In Leviticus, certain animals were unclean for Israel, and they caused them to be unclean if they were eaten or touched. The distinction between the clean and the unclean animals, though, represented symbolically the distinction between Israel and the nations, between Jew and Gentile. So God says in Leviticus at one point, uh, you shall separate clean beasts from unclean, for I, the Lord, have separated you from the peoples. Right? So the, the distinction is symbolic of Israel's distinctness from the nations. Now, while, while an Israelite might be unclean one day and clean the next, uh, they could be cleansed. Uh, for, for lobsters and pigs and seagulls and rabbits and ostriches, right, they were simply unclean, period, and could not become clean. And it was thought, right, since that distinction is, is related to the distinction between Israel and the Gentiles, what that must mean is that the Gentiles are like that, right? They're just unclean. They're like a, a rabbit or a lobster. Uh, they're unclean. They're, they're bestial. A clean Gentile was an oxymoron. It didn't make any sense. But then God meets Peter on the roof. And he tells him to rise, kill, and eat. Rise, kill, and eat an animal that was unclean. And Peter refuses, of course. And God responds, what God has made clean, you are not to call common. God is saying, all food is clean for you. Now, Jesus had actually already declared all foods clean, by the way. We're told as much back in Mark chapter 7, verse 10. We're told that all foods are clean. Uh, but it took a while to sink in. Even now, Peter doesn't really understand the implications of what's going on. He, he's perplexed. And Peter doesn't get it until three men show up at his house, three Gentile men. And God gives a similar command Instead of rise, Peter, kill, and eat, he says, rise and go down and accompany them. Right? But there's a similarity, right? There's this rise. And I didn't notice it actually until I was reading it a few minutes ago. Uh, there's, a, there's a striking similarity uh, to the, the beginning of the book of Jonah. This language of rise is used multiple times in the book of Jonah. And then the language of go down is also used in Jonah. Uh, Jonah is told to rise and go uh, to uh, Nineveh, but he rises and goes to Joppa, actually, where uh, Peter is at the moment. And, um, and Jonah goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down to the shore, and he goes down into the boat, right? And then he goes down into the whale. Uh, but he keeps going down, 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 right? Peter is told to rise and go down and accompany them. And that's what he does. At some point it clicks for him. Peter says later in verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The point here, of course, is that no one is intrinsically unclean, right? Not the camel or the clam, not the barn owl or the bat, not the Philistine, the Assyrian, or even the Roman. No one and no thing is categorically unclean. Now, God isn't saying here that people might not become unclean or need to be cleansed, but, but that no one is unclean simply because of their flesh, simply because of their ethnicity, so, question three, right, does God show partiality or not? Of course, the answer is no. Verse 34, Peter says, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. And what that means is two things. On the one hand, it means God doesn't play favorites. Uh, God doesn't play favorite, favorites when it comes to race or ethnicity or nationality. Any distinction in the flesh. 
And, and of course, we could expand that to any worldly distinction, right? Uh, God doesn't prefer uh, handymen over hairdressers or businessmen over bakers or professors over plumbers or pastors over pizza delivery boys, right? God doesn't prefer people with brown hair over blonde or blue eyes over brown or dark skin over light. Uh, God doesn't prefer people who use proper speech uh, to people who curse like sailors or those who abstain from alcohol over those who drink. God doesn't prefer Baptists to Presbyterians, high church over low, contemporary over traditional. Right? Verse 34, truly I understand God shows no partiality. Any of the distinctions in this age that we can come up with, God doesn't say I prefer this one over that one. Second, what this means is God wants everyone of whatever worldly distinction to hear the gospel. Right? Notice this is where Peter goes next. He moves from the idea that God shows no partiality immediately to talking about Jesus. God intends the gospel to go out to all kinds of people. Now that may be obvious to us, but that was a light bulb in that moment for Peter. And, however obvious it might be to us, it's a lesson that we must learn again and again and again. See, are there people whom you see as outside the reach of God's grace? Are there people with whom you wouldn't bother sharing the gospel who you think, no, not them? Are there groups of people who you look down on? Are you prejudiced against people of another ethnicity or socioeconomic status or education level or gender or culture or whatever? God shows no partiality and wants all kinds of people to hear the good news of Jesus. And notice uh, something interesting, this, this openness for Peter, this, this welcome uh, dare I say, even fellowship, right? They, they come to his table, into his house. The fellowship that this brings is actually not exclusive to Christians. Here, here's what I mean. When Peter first encounters the three men in Joppa, he doesn't wait for them to believe the gospel before he will eat with them. They haven't even heard the gospel yet. And yet, he invites them in for a meal. He eats with Gentiles, with Gentile pagans, not Gentile Christians, Gentile pagans. You know, maybe you show no partiality to people in the church, but you turn up your nose to people outside the church. No. They, they, are, they are creatures of the living God and deserve respect because of that alone. You're, you're not intrinsically better than them because, well, for any reason. God's embrace is inclusive in this sense. He shows no partiality. He wants the good news to go out to all peoples, regardless of any worldly distinction. And what that means is no worldly distinction should stop us from welcoming any individual. That's the inclusivity of God's embrace. What about the exclusivity of God's embrace? Next, I, I, we're going to see three things about the, the exclusivity of that embrace. The first two might seem a bit odd to you, like, why are you even bringing these up? Um, but they are things that actually often frustrate people about Christianity. Uh, yet Peter seems to stress them, and so we need to take notice. And the first is this. It's, it's the historical and geographical particularity of Peter's message. <laughs> okay, what do I mean by that? Um, no sooner had Peter said, God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's verse 35. 
Then immediately he says in verse 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel. Peter begins to recount then what God did in Judea and in Galilee, the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, he says in verse 39. Sometimes this is called the scandal of particularity. Uh, you, you may have heard that term, that God acted in history primarily among one people, the Jews, one nation, Israel. Uh, God then sent Jesus to one people at one time in one place. What God did to save mankind, he did in time and space, but as such, he did it in one time and one place and not all times and all places. And you know, this can actually be kind of bothersome to people. And you might be able to understand why. You may have heard someone say or thought yourself, if only God would do today what he did for Israel, then I would believe. If only God would do today what he did through Jesus in the Gospels, then I would believe. But while God's offer of grace is universal, his work of grace is actually very particular. And it had to be. It had to be because Jesus died once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, bearing our sin upon the cross. Jesus doesn't die again and again. Jesus doesn't have to repeatedly suffer from the advent of sin until the end of the world. Jesus died once for all, done. Jesus' single death is sufficient to deal with sin, but that means the work of our salvation, right, the work of salvation for people of all times and all places had to be done in one time and one place which means that not everyone could see and believe. You know, in the book of John, Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and believed, and Jesus responded. Do you remember how he responded? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Which brings us actually to another aspect of this scandal of particularity, which, uh, number two, is the limits of Jesus' resurrection appearance. Notice how Peter lists what Jesus did in verses 37 to 38. And after that, he says in verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. I think it's interesting that not only did Jesus live and die and rise in a particular time in a particular place, but then God had the risen Jesus appear not to all people, but only to some whom he had chosen to be witnesses. Again, for many of us, that's, that's a little bit annoying. Right? I mean, uh, we, we want Jesus to have appeared to everyone. In fact, we want Jesus to appear to everyone. Again, we think if only Jesus would appear to me, right, then I, then I would believe, or then I would stop doubting. Then I'd really believe. But he didn't, and he won't. Jesus appeared to some whom God had chosen as witnesses, eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They bore witness to his resurrection, and by God's design, they actually continue to bear witness to his resurrection through the New Testament scriptures, because it's those very eyewitnesses and those with them, them who, who ended up writing the New Testament. And so Jesus didn't come to every time, and he doesn't die continually since the beginning of the world, and he didn't appear to every person to personally confirm his resurrection from the dead. 
I mean, we think that would be, that'd be the easy way to do it, right? Like, if Jesus just appears to every single individual, right, then, then they'll know he's risen from the dead, no questions asked. But we have the apostolic eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection in the Bible. That's what God has given. That's where we go to hear of what Jesus did and to believe on him. Notice that there's something really interesting here. Uh, God sent an angel to Cornelius. Did God need to send Peter? He sent an angel to Cornelius, right? Uh, did God need Peter to witness to him? Couldn't the angel have announced the resurrection of Jesus to Cornelius. God could have proclaimed the gospel through the angel, but he used the angel to get Cornelius to hear the message from Peter. It seems like a long way around to us. See, we want the miraculous and the mystical, but God wants us to attend to the mundane. We want the extraordinary. God wants us to attend to the ordinary. Not the angelic word, but the apostolic word brought salvation to Cornelius. Why did God do it this way? I don't know. I mean, God has this thing for means. He likes working through the created order, through the natural for his supernatural ends. If we were God, we would do it completely differently, right? We would do everything supernaturally. Everything would be a miracle. Everything would be amazing. God doesn't do that. And it's a good thing that God works through ordinary means for his superordinary, extraordinary ends, because we are very ordinary, natural, and mundane people. And if God likes to work through such means, then, well, maybe then he can work through us as well. And so there is this exclu ex exclusivity to God's embrace in that he sends Jesus to a particular time in a particular place, he has the resurrected Jesus appear to particular people whom he appoints as eyewitnesses, as apostles. And yet as frustrating as those are for people, it's the next point that for many in our day is the hardest to swallow, which is the exclusivity of forgiveness in Jesus' name. The inclusivity of God's embrace is not tolerance. Right? God doesn't merely want to tolerate people. He wants fellowship with them. And that fellowship is hindered because of sin. In the beginning, God made a holy place to meet with his people in the Garden of Eden. Uh, but because of sin, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden into the wilderness. Later on, God took Israel as his people. He drew them to himself. He placed a tent in the middle of their camp as his dwelling place called the tabernacle. So that he could dwell in the midst of his people. But uh, one theologian, Philip Jensen, in, in a talk about biblical worship, he says this, the tabernacle, I wish I could do his accent, he's Australian, it's great, but I can't do it. Uh, he says, the tabernacle was, was not like our churches. For outside most churches are signs that say, all welcome. Whereas outside the tabernacle, if there was a sign, it would say, trespassers will be prosecuted. Or more accurately, it might say trespassers will be executed. For if you come into the presence of God inappropriately, the anger of God will kill you. So, he says, trespassers will be executed. You see, even for Israel, you didn't just come into God's presence. 
even priests, set aside for service in God's house, had to be cleansed properly before they could enter. And this is the real issue here. It, it looks as if God says in verses 15 and 23, everyone is clean. That's actually not quite the case. God is certainly saying that worldly status does not make you clean or unclean. Being a Jew or a Greek does not make you clean or unclean. Male or female, slave or free, whatever the case, doesn't make you clean or unclean. But that doesn't mean that everyone is clean. When Jesus talked about this in, Matthew's, or in Mark chapter 7, he said this, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not into his heart, but his stomach and is expelled, thus he declared all foods clean, Mark says. And Jesus goes on to say, What comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person, says Jesus. God says animal flesh is not unclean, verse 15. Peter deduces that people in themselves, in their flesh, are not unclean. But while being a Gentile instead of a Jew does not make one unclean, that doesn't mean that one is not unclean. Follow that? <laughs> uh, otherwise, there would be no message to Cornelius. Otherwise, Peter's words would stop at verse 35 or even verse 34. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. End of message. But Peter keeps going. And the message ends not in 34 or 35 or 36, but in verse 43, where Peter says this, To him, that is to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what we need is not a ceremonial cleansing of the flesh, not a ritual cleansing of our bodies, we need a spirit-wrought cleansing of our hearts. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil, says Jesus. How do we get that cleansing? Verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness through his name. Forgiveness comes through Jesus. Jesus was put to death for sin. He was hanged on a tree, Peter said, verse 39. So he became a curse for us who deserved to be cursed. Jesus rose from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death once for all. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge of the living and the dead on the last day, verse 42. The only thing that can save us then from the wrath of Jesus as judge is the grace of Jesus as Savior. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And it's, it's maybe helpful to point out that while we're not told this here, when Peter is recounting this event later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, uh, Peter says this. He says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about this, Acts chapter 10. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
That's the important part. That's what's going on here. God is cleansing, not their flesh, God is cleansing their hearts by faith. What makes the Gentiles unclean is not their flesh. It's not their Gentilishness. What makes Gentiles unclean is the same thing that makes Jews unclean. It's our hearts. What made these Gentiles clean? Their hearts were cleansed through faith, Peter says. Why? Well, because everyone who believes in Jesus, faith, receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. That, that is, he receives the status of clean. And what's the result of that new clean status? Verse 44 tells us. Verse 44 says, while Peter was still saying these things, right, the words are still in his mouth, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The Spirit comes. Why does the Spirit come? Well, to dwell with his people to tabernacle among them, to make them his new covenant temple that says not trespassers will be prosecuted, right? But that all who believe in Jesus may come. This is the the heart of the exclusivity of God's embrace, that we are unclean because of our sin, which means our fellowship with God is broken, but God has opened a fountain of cleansing through the blood of Jesus. And anyone who will come through that fountain may enter into his presence. But only those who come through that fountain may enter into his presence. What do you think of that? Do you think uh, that, well, God should actually just embrace all people, regardless of whether they trust in the blood of Jesus or not? Are are you uncomfortable with the fact that some people are excluded from God's presence and so face judgment? Uh, Do you think that that we should really just overlook religious differences as unimportant? It doesn't really matter. Does the exclusivity of Jesus make you uncomfortable that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved? You know, the truth of the matter is, if there was another way to have our hearts cleansed that I knew of, I would tell you. (laughs) If there was another way other than the cross, in fact, I think Jesus would have preferred it. If possible, Jesus would rather not have drank the cup of God's wrath for us. That's what he said. Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But apparently it was not possible, at least not in the plan of God, for he drank it at the cross. And now the one who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. Does this change the answer to the question of God's partiality? Does God's grace through Jesus make him partial? Grace is not the same as partiality. Uh, It's not that God has some criteria that some must meet in order to be forgiven, some hoop to jump through, some ladder to climb. It's it's not that people must be of this or that race or socioeconomic status or IQ level or income level or education level or whatever. That would be partiality, right? As if God had said, look, I'm partial to people who fill in the blank. But God says, the door of my mercy is wide open to all who will come, and that door is Jesus. All who will may enter, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, rich or poor, black or white or yellow, brown, American, Mexican, Russian, Chinese, right? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the glorious exclusivity of God's embrace. Third point, very briefly the trajectory of God's embrace. 
Notice first how radical of a step this is that we've just seen. The Gentiles are allowed in. They were certainly not allowed in the tabernacle. They, were not, they weren't even allowed in the Israelite camp, right? They were outside, far off. But now the dividing wall of the flesh has been torn down. But also notice how incremental of a step this is in the book of Acts. In Acts, the gospel has gone from Jews to Samaritans to unclean Jews like Simon the Tanner, whom Peter is staying with, and now to pious Gentiles. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one step. But there are more steps to be made, more boundaries to be crossed, right? Cornelius is only the first step toward the Gentile, toward the pagan Rome. A Roman he is, of course, but a pagan he's not. But the gospel has not done its advance against the gates of hell. And before the Acts is over, the gospel will not just go to, to, to pious Gentiles, but to pagan Gentiles. And of course, the story doesn't end there, right? The story doesn't fully end with the book of Acts, because we are still called to cross barriers large and small for the gospel. So the question for us is, how, how can I move out purposefully, intentionally, incrementally even, uh, moving toward others who differ from me, degree by degree, seeking to cross boundaries the world has put up? Our calling is to bring blessing to the nations. We do that by proclaiming the name of Jesus, the seed of Abraham who blesses the nations, by cleansing our hearts by faith that God might dwell in our midst. Jesus, who is taking a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and building us into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, as Paul says. May the Spirit go with us as we proclaim him among the nations. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would embolden us to proclaim Jesus among the nations, to proclaim him to, to everyone we meet, everyone we know. Uh, give, us, give us boldness, give us words to say, give us humility, grace, empower us by your Spirit. We pray that many would come to know the Savior, many from every tribe, tongue, and nation, many from every, uh, every little category we can think of in this world, because all of those categories are meaningless when it comes to Jesus and the cross. We thank you for the grace that we have in the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.